Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're turning to one of the most important stories of the early 21st century, the fate of Saudi Arabia. In the past two weeks alone, Saudi Arabia has been invited to join the bloc of emerging powers known as the BRICS. They'll join next year. European oil prices have gone back above $90 a barrel thanks to Saudi Arabia and Russia joining forces to cut production. And on top of it all, we've got the Saudi Arabian Football League emerging as a genuine global power. When the transfer window closed last week, the Saudi League had spent more than any other league in the world except the Premier League. On transfer fees, they'd spent almost a billion dollars, attracting stars like Sadio Mane from Bayern Munich or the Liverpool captain Jordan Henderson, and even Karim Benzema, the reigning holder of the Ballon d'Or, earning as much as 200 million euros a year. Through all this, the Biden administration has been working on trying to normalise relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So the question we're asking this week is, why is Saudi power resurgent? And what does it mean for the geopolitical future? We all expect an increase in the price of oil. How much? That's the question I'm asking you. <laughs> Saudi Arabia will definitely take into account the interests of the other parts of the world which depend on the production of Saudi Arabia. Anybody that challenges the existence of this country and this kingdom, all of us, we are projects of jihad and martyrdom. Saudi-led coalition has been accused by human rights groups of using cluster bombs in civilian areas. The target of airstrikes led by Saudi Arabia. We do not hit the wrong target. We do not target any target without make sure that it is a Houthi's uh, target. Saudi Arabia's state-owned oil giant Aramco has announced a record profit of $161.1 billion. Breaking news, Cristiano Ronaldo has signed for Saudi side Al Nasser. Al Hilal have signed Neymar. Last year's Ballon d'Or winner Karen Benzema. Jordan 
Henderson, Sadio Mane, Riyad Mahrez. Fans were celebrating it at James's Park today on hearing their clubs been bought by a consortium led by a Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund. PGA and Saudi-backed Live Golf, formerly bitter rivals, have officially announced a merger. I think the kingdom is in a uniquely powerful position with what is happening in Ukraine. They say in a lot of projects that happen in Saudi Arabia can be done. This is very ambitious. They can't keep saying that, and we can't keep proving them wrong. So, Helen, the thing that gets me when I think about Saudi Arabia is you wind the clock back not that far, and you had European empires with control over natural resources around the world. You had British companies, American companies, with seemingly a grip on oil in the Middle East. And then from out of this emerges a country like Saudi Arabia with vast wealth and control and power. How did that happen? Well, I think, Tom, we have to go back to the world after the First World War. And what happened in the First World War in terms of oil resources was that the British and the French, but particularly the British, got a strong foothold in the Middle East. Now, in the 1920s, Oil was discovered in Mesopotamia, so present-day Iraq. It had been known for a long time that there was oil, likely to be oil, in Iraq. And what was noticeable about this was that the American oil companies, which were primarily those interested in world markets, were the successors to John Rockefeller's Standard Oil, was broken up into regional oil companies. So there was Standard Oil of California, Standard Oil of New York, Standard Oil of... Um, New Jersey. Broken up by the state, by the American state. Yes. Is that the American companies were shut out. There was a great deal of concern at the beginning of the 1920s in Washington about this because they worried that American domestic oil production was reaching a peak. And they saw, in some sense, that in energy terms, the British had been the winners of the First World War. Mm-hmm. The big change that happened was when oil was discovered in, I think, it was 1930 in Bahrain. Right. British controlled Bahrain yes. at the time. Yeah. And that gave the real hope that there was oil in what was going to become Saudi Arabia. So there wasn't actually a Saudi state at that point. Saudi Arabia, as we know it, was created as a kingdom in 1932 mm-hmm. by Ibn Saud, who became the first king of that Saudi state. And he unified four um, previous kingdoms. What is important to understand in terms of the future geopolitics of this was that Saudi King was advised by a man who had been for a while working for British intelligence. He was actually Kim Philby's father, a man called (laughs) John Philby. He was also, though, being paid by one of the Standard Oil companies, Standard Oil of California. So they had him as on a retainer. So the British were very, very hopeful that when the concession for drilling in for oil in Saudi Arabia would come up, that the, the consortium of companies that the Anglo-Persian oil company was the biggest player in, and Anglo-Persian oil company was majority owned by the British government, that they would end up with the Saudi concession. But John Philby's manoeuvrings ensured actually that it went to Standard Oil of California. Kim Philby became a big Arabist as well as a traitor. This is how the Americans commercially got a serious foothold into the Middle East that they really hadn't had in the in the um, 
in the 1920s. Now, the oil wasn't actually found until like 1938. So we're nearly at the Second World War by this point. Now, that meant there was a pretty quick security threat to those oil wells. And initially, Franklin Roosevelt's administration didn't want it to be the case that Americans actually had to, the American government actually had to take some military responsibility for defending Saudi Arabia. So they were like, to the British, you do it. Yeah. But then yeah. by about 1943, and this is where things really start to change in terms of the future US-Saudi relationship, Roosevelt started to think that actually if the British were the ones protecting Saudi Arabia, that it would be the British companies who would be the players in Middle East around Saudi Arabia after the war. So you see a series of moves that Roosevelt makes from like 1943. He gives a Lend-Lease Agreement to Saudi Arabia. The great power play. Yeah. And, and then at one point, he looks at trying to actually take, have the American government control the oil company that's created, which is essentially a subsidiary of California Standard Oil that becomes Aramco, the company that is the oil company for Saudi Arabia to this day, except now obviously it is state-owned, not by the American state, but by the Saudi state. And then in 1945, in the middle of the war, Roosevelt goes and meets Ibn Saud, the Saudi king, on an American military ship in the Suez Canal and gives Saudi Arabia a security guarantee. So the security guarantee then just guarantees that America is in the Middle East for good after 45. It does. But the striking thing is that the Americans don't want to be a significant military player, actually, in the Middle East. So this is really at this point, like focused around the international American oil companies, the Standard Oil successors. So one of the other ones, the Standard Oil of New Jersey, and then a company, Texaco, that had actually originally been an independent Texas company, so not part of Rockefeller's empire, comes into the Aramco deal um, right. too. But what I think we can see in the years, and this is going to run all the way through really to the 1970s, is that it is possible for the United States to be the economically important player around Saudi oil without in any sense having to commit American military power really to the exercise. That's kind of left to Britain and that's the context, I think, in which the Suez crisis. Yeah, yeah. But I don't understand why Britain is, is playing this role on behalf of the Americans. Why are we defending? Well, because obviously the place where the Anglo-Persian oil company is still in a pretty strong position is in Iran. Right. And also actually in Iraq as well, where Iran's the one that's... that's so we're still a big player at the time, as well as the United States. I think it, it would be a way of saying is that the American oil companies are the ones that commercially are the bigger player. Right. But the actual who has military influence, military bases in the Middle East itself is quite bound up with Britain. And one of the things that then, in one sense everything changes then in the 1970s. So it changes because the British can no longer stay. It's just we're too weak. Britain's too weak. This is the east of Suez change. East of Suez um, withdrawal. That happens at pretty much the same time that the American domestic oil production peaks. So this is pre-shale. So it reaches a peak in 1970. And then through the 70s, 
the US is on a fairly rapid trajectory to becoming the world's largest oil importer. So now it's importing Saudi oil itself, not something that it had been that it had done. From the 70s onwards. From the 70s onwards. And what we're seeing, and the beginnings of this is in the 60s, but it, the beginning of the 60s, but it really comes to the fore in the late 60s, is Arab nationalism being directed against the international oil companies. Right. I was going to say, because how, how do you go from having these American companies in Saudi Arabia to the Saudis owning it outright? Is it out of the rise of Arab nationalism? Absolutely. I think that the way to think about the end of the 60s and the 70s in this respect is to see that what happens around oil in the Middle East, and that is true both in relation to British military withdrawal, British withdrawal from its Gulf, the Gulf kingdoms, yeah. where it's been the imperial And Egypt. Power. Yeah. It, all this has a corollary on the commercial side of it, which is a number of Arab countries led initially by Libya when Colonel Gaddafi came right. to power okay. of, of saying enough's enough mm -hmm. is these agreements that we have whereby we basically have your oil companies and we get a limited amount of revenue Yeah, and it's our oil. That world is over. So through the 70s, we see pretty much all in the end, the Middle Eastern countries, including by the time of the Iranian revolution, Iran, saying nationalizing the oil companies. Was there any talk in Europe or in the United States at this point of just a straightforward return to empire? Just take take over Saudi Arabia? There is actually, I mean, it's, got, it's a complete non-starter, but there is a point in 19, some point in, in the autumn of 1973, where Kissinger's like wandering around the White House, this is a point when Nixon is pretty near having his like nervous breakdown. So in <laughs> right. his last months okay. in uh, Washington, he's, in the, in the, he, he's basically making these threats because what the, the Saudis had discovered, obviously, in that moment, so in the autumn of 1973, was that oil could be used as a geopolitical weapon. Now, what's interesting is that at that point, actually, uh, Ramco was still... The Saudi state had a stake in it, but it was not got majority control. Wow. So actually, the international oil companies were they were part of they were part Ramco. of the threat to their own countries. Yeah, because seventy three for listeners is this is the oil crisis. This is the first oil price shock. So this is the point in which essentially OPEC, so that had been formed like in the nineteen sixties without having so much influence, which was basically a cartel of the most of the world's oil producers outside the United States and the uh, Soviet Union would act collectively together to control the amount of production in order to try to control the price. And what that they did uh, in response to a lot of Western support, or at least some Western support for during the Yom Kippur War of 1973 was to cut production. So that meant that oil prices increased about 350% over a four-month period from the autumn. And in the case of the United States, which was very active, support, actively supporting Israel, as was the Netherlands, they actually embargoed the sale of oil. So this was the first time in which, in the post-1945 world, that the Americans in particular had anything that could really be described as an oil price shock. It's amazing in the context of that world that existed at the time, the United States and the Soviet Union standing outside of a 
of a cartel, allowing a cartel to be formed that could be used as a weapon against against them. You know, it's amazing yeah, that that but happened. But I think that I think that we I think that this is where we have to really understand like how much is changing in the in the 1970s. I think that it, it, it's just the the point in which European empire in the Middle East is completely and utterly comes to the end. And really, yeah. it's British Empire by this. Right, um, yeah. Everyone else has gone, yeah. Point. And it happens to happen at the same time as the Americans start to uh, need to import significant amounts of um, oil. And that's why it's such a seismic change, really, to the world, the post-Second World War world. And I think that if we look at it in terms of the difficulties that Western countries have through the 1970s, it is like trying to adjust to a world where the most important energy resource is one that they can no longer control in any way, neither through international oil companies nor through British imperial power. And that must be a shock to ordinary people who are used to feeling that their government is in control. If they're listening to... Edward Heath on the radio. It was in 73, wasn't it, in the winter, where he's saying, we're in for the worst Christmas since the war and there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, that that is a, a kind of psychological shock, I imagine. It is. And, that, and in that is the sense of like, this is happening in a place that we don't understand yeah. anything about. And I think that what we can see then through the 70s is, if you like, the first real rise of Saudi power, because as we're going to see, there's something quite cyclical about these bursts of Saudi power. And they've got something in common, which is high oil prices because of tight oil supply. Yeah, which they are partly in control. Uh, And what happens then, and this this one, this cycle, if you like, runs all the way through to like, I'd say like probably 1981. Um, So it runs through the second oil price shock brought about by the Iranian revolution and the of Iran, 79 uh, yeah and the Iran Iraq war is that OPEC is able to which is being led by the Saudis is is essentially able to keep the prices of oil high and for its own benefit and that means in the Saudi case that there's a lot then of petrodollars as they were often called floating about like in the 70s in the same way in which that there are there now are today. going into into sport. Now, in the 70s, a lot of that ended up being recycled into the United States, including buying large amounts of American debt. And that helped America adjust to the world in which it needed to import large amounts. Of so is that oil. the grand bargain then from America's perspective? You know, they protect Saudi Arabia and in return they get the Saudis buying their debt they keep their debt prices low the dollar strong yeah I mean in some for a little bit we, we don't need to really get into this but a little bit that actually allows them to keep the dollar weak which is a kind of oh, right. <laughs> paradox in some way but it definitely tightens the military relationship between the US and Saudi Arabia because part of what Saudi Arabia gets out of this new relationship is arms sales the Americans selling them like military. So the money's being recycled in a way and both sides are benefiting. Absolutely. And it's very much a US-Saudi thing as well. I mean, quite a number of the European governments are very unhappy 
that the petrodollars from Saudi Arabia, well, the Middle East generally, but Saudi Arabia in particular, being recycled into the United States and, and not um, into Europe. But once you get alternative supply of oil coming on top of the recessions of the late 70s and the early 80s, so this is oil that's coming from the North Sea, it's coming from Alaska, it's coming from offshore in um, Mexico, it, it proves impossible for OPEC to exercise anything like the same influence. So if we go to 1982, when um, Israel invades Lebanon, mm -hmm. OPEC can't muster a response to that. So, I mean, this is simplifying yeah. quite a lot, but there's, I think you can then say that there's a fairly long cycle, certainly from the mid 80s, all the way through to the beginning of this century, where Saudi Arabia and OPEC are not able to exercise anything like the influence that they that they had. So they're a big player, but they're not in, in sort of they haven't got a chokehold on on, on, well, on the Well, yeah, West. but they still obviously one of the world's largest oil producers, and they can still have some impact upon mm -hmm. the price at the margin. But they're not capable of delivering the kind of oil price shocks that they had been able to do in the 1970s. And they're for a lot of that time, not all of it, but for a lot of that time, they're interested in having more cooperative relations. And we're, and during this time, we're starting to build relations with other countries in the Middle East, Qatar, or, you know, other countries that have got gas and other resources. And that presumably is a way of hedging for European countries. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you, the, the cycle really starts again, I'd say, at some point in the early 2000s, probably, let, let's just say for the sake of argument, let's say 2002-ish. And the big driver of that is China joining the World Trade Organization and China's economic growth starting to be spectacular. And as China's economy was growing much more rapidly in those years, China's demand for oil was rising very spectacularly too. Now, the interesting thing about this bit, though, is that that's obviously good news for the Saudis. Yeah. But sort of by about 2005, their own oil industry is showing some signs of, of weakness. So they get the benefit of like high prices mm -hmm. for a while um, at this point, but they can't actually increase their production to meet that demand. Really, it's Russia that is able more to step into that growing demand. And as you said, Tom, there's the issue of gas, which is becoming ever more important as an energy um, source and European countries looking for alternatives when they, as they see that North Sea gas has a shelf life. Yeah. And Saudi Arabia doesn't have gas. Qatar does. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia doesn't. Now that cycle then comes to a crashing end in like, in, in like 2008, it starts again quite quickly after 2008, actually really by like 2011, oil prices are back above $100 a barrel again. It was in 2010 that BRICS was formed, that that was adding South Africa to Brazil, Russia, India, and China. There's talk about the commodity exporters being a new block. But into this comes something that changes everything really for the US-Saudi relationship, and that is the US shale oil yeah, when when does the, when does that start? Well, you could, 
it's hard to it's hard to put a, a date on it in the sense is is it's 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 starting in the sense of there being uh, um, increased oil production probably from about 2010, but it's starting to have an impact uh, in oil markets say by 2012 2013, and by 2014 it's really freaking the Saudis. And this is basically because it, it they it, it's big enough that they can replace. The dependence on Saudi oil at a, at, a, at the same kind of price. Yeah, I mean it, it's complicated because you can't just substitute. There are different kinds of oil, and there's question of like what can be refined. So it's not just a straight like okay, we need to stop importing Saudi and we're just going to use our domestically produced stuff. It's more complicated than that. And the US a lot of the time is actually still net importer. But the point, I think, it's two points that are important. First of all it radically reduces the amount of oil that the United States is importing. And by the middle of the 2010s, it will be China that's the world's largest oil importer and not the United States. And, and I think this is probably just as important where the, particularly where the Obama administration was concerned, gave the idea that the United States could pull back yeah. In the Middle East. That That's is, certainly think, how I understood yeah, it. Yeah, the context of the pivot to Asia, for instance, is a sense the Middle East, it's still a problem, but it doesn't have to have the same priority. Yeah, right? it's be- and do. it's becoming less of a problem over time. We've become more self-sufficient and we can just start ignoring these people that we'd, we'd rather ignore if we possibly could, but we just haven't been able to afford to. Yeah, and if you think about then the context in which it's happening that is happening and some of the things that we've talked about in like previous episodes about what's going on in Syria yeah. like in 2013 so the US and Saudi Arabia have been on the same side in the Syria conflict anti-Assad and then the Saudis are extremely unhappy when Obama having drawn that red line about the use of chemical weapons doesn't follow through while that's happening is the Obama administration is pursuing the nuclear deal with Iran, which the Saudis are also very unhappy about, Iran being Saudi Arabia's regional rival. So we see really in those years, sort of 2013, 2014, really deep tensions in the US-Saudi relationship. And the way in which the Saudis respond to on the oil side in autumn of 2014 is to say, okay, if the shale oil industry in the US is causing us all these problems, let's try and bankrupt it. <laughs> Go but to war, yeah. You ba- basically, that they won't be able to deal with a period of low prices. We will, because it's a lot cheaper to get the kind of oil that comes out. And they've, in got, Saudi Arabia. they've got enough money in the bank as well. Yeah, that's what they think. And so they crash the price of oil in from starting from late 2014 by cutting on a market where the price is already coming down quite considerably. So how far does it drop? It drops like under under $30 a barrel like in 2015. And it's a quite a sustained period. Yeah. It's a period that runs all of low prices, runs all the way through 2015, really all the way through to the autumn of 2016. And the only way in which the Saudis can actually deal with that in the end is to ask Putin for help. And that is the formation of what is now OPEC plus. So plus being Russia, plus some other oil producing countries that weren't previously in OPEC. And together they agreed to cut production 
and to basically put a floor on the price. It didn't give way to a period of high oil prices, but it gave way to a period of higher oil prices from the autumn of 2016, really through through 2019 until until the pandemic. It feels like, like listening to you, you can explain so much about the world today just by some of those sentences, you know, the, the point at which China becomes the biggest net importer of oil in the world. I mean, that has got to be a defining moment. The, the, you know, the moment that the Saudis join forces with Russia to try and in an alliance against the United States, that's a seismic moment. So much of this feels seismic, but it goes under the radar in our kind of coverage and our understanding of the world. It does. And I think that you can definitely explain quite a lot of the geopolitics of the 2010s just around those things that, that you picked out. But at the same time, I think where Saudi Arabia is concerned to understand where things are now, we've got to think about some personalities. Yeah, yeah. So into the mix comes the current crown prince, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. So when he comes into power, or he becomes a sort of prominent person. Yeah, I think he becomes defence minister, first of all, in January of 2015. So this is a few months after the Saudi crashed their oil price. So he's not actually responsible for that. Or he wouldn't look like any way he's like responsible for that. And we should decision. just we should just say here that this is his rise is particularly interesting because so he becomes Minister of Defence and Deputy Crown Prince in the same year in 2015, and and Crown Prince is the kind of anointed successor to the King. And the way that the Saudi royal family works is very different from a, a European monarchy in that it doesn't pass down the generations; it can pass across the generation. So it went down from Ibn Saud to his son, and then it's gone through a number of brothers after that. And so it hasn't actually dropped another generation until now. And there were brothers to the late king who were perfectly suited to the job of becoming crown prince. But MBS seems to have jumped the line. And that that is quite a revolutionary moment for Saudi Arabia and for the world. It is. And we can see a number of things that come out, I think, of Mohammed bin Salman's rise. One of the first things he does, this I think is still 2015, is to take Saudi Arabia into the civil war in Yemen. Yep. He then, a year later, so this is 2016, publishes this strategy for Saudi Arabia's future that he calls Vision 2030. Yep. Which is the idea that... Saudi Arabia has to reimagine the kind of power it is, has to get away from oil, or at least it has to adjust to, a, in some sense, a post-oil world, and that it's going to have much higher domestic consumption, it's going to have more foreign, much more foreign investment. And in the end, it's out of Vision 2030 that this sports yeah. commitment that we're going to come to comes. I think the other thing that we should say before we, well, there's a few more things we need to get in on there before that, yeah. is that Mohammed bin Salman's rise causes a lot of turmoil within Saudi Arabia itself. I mean, in, at, at the elite level of Saudi Arabia. So in 2017, he is literally you know, imprisoning members of the Saudi royal family in a hotel in Riyadh, capital with allegations of torture. Some of them are 
are, are being um, tortured, that this becomes a very chaotic kind of politics. And I think that it is at this point, Saudi Arabia completely at a, a place in the oil cycle that is they've never been before. It's never been this internally destructive and that they've never seemed to be so geopolitically weak. And even if you take the fact that they've made this alliance with Russia through uh, OPEC Plus, at that point, I think it's still pretty much a fairly pragmatic marriage of convenience. Yeah. So, I mean, they are... The Americans feel at this point confident to be slow, slowly pulling out of the Middle East or paying less attention to it over the long term. And, and bin Salman becomes crown prince in 2017. And so you, you can see that the the very from the beginning, this, the irony that you have to deal with or the, or the contradiction you have to deal with when you're thinking about MBS is that he's both a kind of modernizer and um, a liberalizer but not a Democrat in any sense. Like he is a pretty ruthless dictatorial figure. Now, they're not necessarily contradictions. There have been plenty of examples of this in history. So he comes in in 2017, as you say, he locks away all of these members of the ruling elite. It reminds me actually of Putin going after the oligarchs when he comes in. It's a kind of, it's a power play, but it's also popular, it seems, with the population who just seek sort of rife corruption throughout the Saudi royal family. And again, the Saudi royal family, to understand it, is not just, is not like the British royal family, where there are, I don't know, 10 figures that you might know. This is a Saudi royal family that is, that sort of runs throughout society. It kind of spreads out. So there are, I think MBS himself has talked about like a thousand uh, monarchies underneath the, the monarchy that we know that sort of rule each bit of society. It's like a, a complete monarchy. It's total control as it spirals down the pyramid. Like everybody has a ruler above them, as I, as I understand it, in the monarchy. And he sort of sits atop this whole system. And he's going after everybody in that system, the oligarchs at the top all the way down. And he essentially extracts money from them. I think it's something like a hundred billion, he says he, he gets in corruption repaid to the to the Saudi state, which you can see how that would be popular as it was popular in Russia. And it's at this moment where both Saudi Arabia looks weak, but MBS looks incredibly strong that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi takes place in 2018. He is the Washington Post journalist who enters the embassy, the Saudi embassy in Turkey and is dismembered and we think dissolved before being taken away and which the CIA concluded that it was authorised by MBS. Did you order the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? Absolutely not. This was a heinous crime. But I take full responsibility as a leader in Saudi Arabia, especially since it was committed by individuals working for the Saudi government. At this point, Donald Trump is president. And, you know, Donald Trump doesn't seem to care about these things particularly. But when Joe Biden becomes president, he is makes it clear that he's sort of sickened and horrified by this and says Saudi Arabia has become a pariah that it is, and he won't speak to MBS. And there's talk even that the, the Americans are hopeful that MBS will be sidelined by the, the king who's still, a, who's still there as the uh, official ruler uh, in charge, and perhaps he could be pushed aside and a new crown prince can come in. But that 
never happens and it uh, you know people who 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 know Saudi Arabia say it was never going to happen no i think it's important to see here that there is a point that under trump really where the question of the us saudi relationship becomes a really contested partisan issue in yeah. us i mean there's some evidence of it before but it's really so under trump because although this trump comes in january 2017 is that this is a period in which Saudi is in a weak position in the cycle. Trump doesn't think like that. After all, the first official visit that he makes to any country as president is to Saudi Arabia. Oh, that's that very odd picture of him holding the orb, the glowing orb in Saudi Arabia with it's it's the king and Sisi, isn't it, of of Egypt together yeah. holding the orb. And they do this ritual dance for Trump and he he loves it. Well, also that there's clear commercial interest. Because if we go back to like where Vision Saudi 2030 is going to go and, and, and the sport, golf is part of that. Yeah. These, these uh, golf tournaments that now big high profile golf tournaments in Saudi Arabia are on Trump owned golf courses. <laughs> right. Yes. So y- you, you've got this sort of relationship between the American corruption and the Saudi project like Veer Trump. Trump is definitely positioning himself as saying the Obama administration got it wrong about Saudi Arabia, that they let the relationship go too much, but he's also bound up materially in his own yes. interests with that. But the, the thing, the there's a really important point uh, I think that we should use before we take a break to sort of frame where we've got to. And that is in the September of 2019, then either Iran or Iranian-backed rebels from Yemen, the Houthi, make a massive attack on Saudi oil facilities. and In Saudi Arabia. In Saudi, yeah. And the American air defense system, that, well, the, the air defense system that they bought from the Americans doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. And although this is when Trump's president trump does not make any response to that now if you think back to where we started back in roosevelt or not where near where we started yeah with roosevelt you know on that boat in the suez canal offering like a security guarantee from the saudi point of view this is like a nightmare here they have if not their regional rival itself doing it their regional rivals proxies doing it and and nothing happens and then if you put it in the opec plus context by that Putin's kind of mocking them at the time. He's kind of clearly taking like around sides. So if you were we were stopping the clock in like September of 2019, we'd say that this is not a world that, that, that where there's resurgent Saudi power. Yeah, it looks everything. Everything about it looks like it's a there's a there's a sort of a weakness baked into the system. We should turn after the break into why that actually hasn't proved to be the case. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Respect to the murder of Khashoggi. I raise it at the top of the meeting, making it clear what I thought of it at the time and what I think of it now. And it was exactly, I was straightforward and direct in discussing it. I made my view crystal clear. So, so where we left ho- off, Helen, before the break was that Saudi Arabia was defenseless. It, its systems hadn't worked. It seemed weak and it seemed sort of strategically weak and that the oil prices were not as big of a weapon as they seemed. And then fast forward to today, Donald Trump has been replaced by Joe Biden. Joe Biden comes in, calls Mohammed bin Salman a pariah, and then has ended up having to fly in to see him. Oil prices are high again, and they're splashing the cash, not just on football, but they've managed to have a sort of takeover of golf with this live tournament based in Saudi Arabia. It just seems extraordinary. And and also, you know, Bin Salman is being greeted by world leaders everywhere, including our own, you know, as if as if the, the you know, the murder never happened. How on earth do we go from what where were we 2018 to today? Well, in one sense, I think that the story in 2020 is actually gets worse for Saudi Arabia. <laughs> right. Initially, because demand because drops. demand crashes right. it, and it starts crashing in China is if you think when in Wuhan when the outbreak began yeah. in, in in Wuhan and then OPEC plus which obviously really means bin Salman and, and Putin have to decide like how to respond to that and they can't agree with each other it might be that had got something to do with the strained relations after the attack on the Saudi oil facilities but Regardless, they can't agree. And then Bin Salman, and it clearly is him, in I think it's the first weekend, of either the first or the second weekend of March, decides that he's going to try to crash the oil price again to make another attempt at bankrupting, essentially, like the US shale sector, perhaps hoping it was going to hurt, hit like Russia too. And such are his actions and the foolishness of that from his own point of view. He actually, in the futures market, sends oil into negative oil prices into like negative territory. And by this point, Trump is absolutely furious with him because he doesn't want oil prices so low for American shale producers. So it seems anyway that he picks up the phone to Bin Salman and tells him that the Americans will be pulling the military plug on Saudi Arabia unless they start cutting back. So really, interestingly, Trump puts OPEC Plus back together. (laughs) Right, yeah. Again, because at that point, you say all three world, the world's leading oil producers, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the United States actually got an interest in, in, in not allowing oil prices to plummet because of the pandemic. It's really, I think, a year later. So we're now a bit more. So we're basically the summer of 2021 where things change back to the Saudis' advantage. And as you said, this is when Joe Biden's in the White House. He's made it very clear that he doesn't want to deal with Saudi Arabia. He doesn't want to deal with Mohammed bin um, Salman at all. Um, personally, he just won't, he won't speak he to won't, him. Yeah, he won't even speak to him, will he? Yeah. Is, but once 
the Chinese economy starts really to recover, and it's the first, obviously, major economy to do so economically from the um, pandemic, we start to see pressure on oil prices. So by, I think it's August of 2021, Biden is having to ask Saudi Arabia, OPEC Plus, to increase more oil, to, to increase oil yeah. production. Nothing is really forthcoming. And so by the autumn of that year, so the autumn of 2021, the Biden administration is coordinating releases from the strategic, the US Strategic Petroleum Reserve with China. And then into... It's, sorry, it's coordinating that with yeah, China. Yeah, with China. And then into that, in February 2022, comes Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Which um, then sends the which sends price. prices up. So reaching, I think there, there's a peak at the peaks like May of 2022 it's around the 115 dollars a barrel but several months before that so march biden has said well we are going to now release 180 million barrels from the u.s strategic petroleum reserve and by this even though he's put that in motion though that policy is happening he still actually has to go in the summer of 2022 to react and ask for help. I mean, that is hum eating humble pie, isn't it? I mean, it, the, the way you're talking about it, I, I just can't help thinking of like mafia dons, you know, trying to fix things. And when you think of Trump, MBS and Putin, you know, each kind of hit in their own territory, but each have a, a, a kind of stake in this system. And then Biden trying to break away from it, but just not being able to. I guess the strategic reserve is is a strategic reserve. It can't be there forever. You can't just turn the. It's not something you can just turn the taps on, is it? You can no, use no, it, it and then it, it's gone. It's, well, you can obviously refill it. I yeah. mean, that's the idea. Biden said it was going to be refilled, but when the price came down and the price has, I mean, I, I think they've done. I think maybe six million barrels or something were refilled in August. Or certainly over the over the summer. Um, months, but no significant refilling has occurred. And now, with the US price, the price is is not quite over ninety; it's more in the top eighties. But now there's talk of having to do it, how having to release more yeah. oil. Because if you go back to summer of last year and into the autumn, Biden's big concern was the midterm elections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. It was in that context that as much pressure was being put on OPEC Plus and the Saudis as it was. And indeed, what the Saudis did was literally a month before the midterm elections announced a big production cut. So there's, they've got no interest in helping Biden in this respect. But what we can see from the Saudi point of view, obviously, is that this cycle where we've had a, a, a period of sustained high prices, sometimes at the higher end of high mm -hmm. than others... But that has given a whole new lease of life to Vision 2013. And it's in that context that the sports boom in Saudi Arabia has to be understood. Yeah. I mean, there's so many questions, aren't there, that um, just jump out of you when you're, when you're thinking about this in the way that you've explained it, Helen, which is, you know, is this a cycle? Are these prices going to come to an end? Um, what 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 does that mean? Is the the true story underneath that Saudi Arabia is weakening as the kind of post oil world comes into play, and this Saudi vision twenty thirty is a hedge against that? It's that's how we should understand it. That Bin Salman is a 
is a young leader. He's what, 38 now, I think. He's so he's inexperienced. He is rash. He's, as we've seen with Khashoggi, he's brutal. Perhaps he's effective. You know, we don't know. It wasn't, didn't necessarily seem effective in Yemen. So, so is, is he, is he this kind of great strong leader of a strong state or is he just benefiting from this cyclical boom in, in oil prices? I, I think it's hard to understand because when you look at the South, that what they're doing with sport, you can't, it's, it's hard to, to know whether, this is just this massive upfront investment. You know, you're talking, like we said, a billion uh, dollars that has gone into uh, football players. Uh, and I think that there's talk of many more billions that are, are going to be funded over the next few years into into football. This is a genuine attempt by the state. It's controlled by the state. So the state has bought out four uh, Saudi Arabian football clubs, so it's essentially nationalized them and said, right, go and buy the best players in the world. And we'll do this sustainably over a few seasons and until we get this football league that is able to compete against European counterparts when they meet each other at this World Club Cup that FIFA hopes will rival the Champions League someday. And, and this be, is, a, is part of this plan and that could turn Saudi Arabia into a sort of giant Dubai, which is far more self-sufficient. And he has achieved kind of remarkable things when you look at it already. The amount that he's liberalized within Saudi Arabia, no, it sounds silly, but opening cinemas and theaters, bulldozing down the walls in restaurants that would separate men and women from eating together. This is unthinkable from uh, 10 years ago, but it has transformed uh, Saudi Arabia. And so is he doing this from position of long-term strategic structural strength or weakness? Well, I think if you go back to the original articulation of the project, it was very much couched in the language of breaking Saudi Arabia's oil I think he may even use the word addiction, but certainly like like dependency. And you know, it comes in the a year after Paris Climate Summit. Lots of hope that the world is moving to much lower oil consumption. But the paradox at the heart of Vision Two Thousand and Thirty was always that all this these projects were dependent on oil revenues. Yes. Yeah. So is is that it wasn't an alternative in that sense. It was actually dependent upon oil revenues. And that's why it's in this period of the last couple of years where we've seen oil high, higher oil prices that the sports project has been able to be pushed in the way in which it has. I think if you then look at it in terms of like the medium term, you can say, I think that... Saudi Arabia is still actually likely to be a significant oil player for the future, for the foreseeable future. Even the International Energy Agency, which has basically been saying that actually the short-term growth will come from the Western Hemisphere, including like US shale, but also Brazil and Guyana, will say for the medium term, it's still the Middle East where the deep oil and medium exists, term means right? well, decades. That's, that's or... the question because right. obviously it means decades in one sense, but this could all radically change if there was a significant reduction, a very significant reduction 
in the demand for oil generated by or arising from the energy transition energy revolution so if you actually take off 40% let's just say as a random figure of the demand for oil over the next 10 20 years then this looks rather different for Saudi Arabia it doesn't look completely different i, I don't think because it would seem i would think that if you look at it who's going to be the last player standing in the oil world then it was reasonable to bet on Saudi Arabia. They they have got declining fields, but they've also been investing in the oil sector. Yeah, It's not that it's been Vision 2030 versus a binary choice between Vision 2030 investing in oil. They've been um, doing both. See, I think it's quite a scary prospect, actually, Saudi Arabia, over this medium term that you've set out. They're both strong enough, it seems, to sustain this and there would be the the last man standing as you say with vast reserves of cash petrodollars that they've got i think the saudi arabian investment fund i was reading has something like 600 billion dollars in cash that they are they're able to spend and they're, they're spending some of that on on football as we've seen and golf and creating these new cities in the desert and i think it's called neom if, if anybody's ever not seen it you should look it up on youtube this city called the line which is just extraordinary so literally a line in the desert very thin with no cars and enormous mirrored walls on each side of the desert and this is apparently going to be a new way of living although i've spoken to people who are working on it and say it's a disaster internally but you know let's see but these these are mad futuristic visions but i, I just i have this vision of saudi arabia being strong and powerful and you've got this young leader who's 38 now so he's going to be there for our virtually our, our entire lifetimes he will be able to embed his power using all of of this money and he will presumably like the western critique of saudi arabia will will sort of dissipate because it looks like he is liberalizing and sort of moving towards a society which we are better able to understand that looks a little bit more like dubai where we fly in to go on holiday and we're able to go to the cinema and go to Starbucks and watch, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo playing football and go to golf tournaments and all of these kind of things. But actually underneath, it's a ruthless autocracy. There was a fantastic profile of Bin Salman in The Atlantic where they where they managed to speak to him and sort of profile what the country was like. And they get this tension between the modernizing liberal Bin Salman and the and the scary autocratic um, power hungry Bin Salman. They're both sides of him, and so you could imagine what happens to to a country controlled by that, where there is this fear that if you not only if you speak out against him, but if you even praise any of his rivals or rival powers in the kingdom, you could find yourself being chopped up, or you suddenly find yourself you have to go and live in Canada or Britain, move all of your family away. What happens to a country like that when you have a dictator that's taken on his power and it's he's secure in it, and then oil prices start slowly falling and he's having to adapt to a completely different world? That seems quite a scary prospect to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's any reason to think that the oil cycle is over. I mean, not least because... What we see historically is that high oil prices cause recessions and then recessions 
lead to big falls in oil <laughs> yeah. um, prices. That's why it's very difficult to get to any kind of like equilibrium where oil prices are concerned. I think that what's different about the way in which the next cycles, if we can think about it like that, play out are twofold than what we've seen in the past. First is, is that there's never been such a concerted effort before to reduce oil demand. Yeah. Now, that, that it is pretty complicated trying to do it because it isn't just a matter of like how fast, say, many more electric vehicles come on the road. The demand, even in Western countries, for certain oil products, petrochemicals, is actually rising quite significantly. So it's not simply a question of like oil's energy use. That right, is it, okay. Um, issue here. But I think the other thing that, the second thing that's different is is just the geopolitics of it. Because before the cycles have basically played out within the context of the US-Saudi relationship, that was unraveling might be too strong a word, but it was in under yeah, very fr badly when the Saudis crashed the price in like 2014, some under the Obama administration. But what we've seen since then is some Saudi moves to get closer to China. And that makes obviously a lot of sense in a world in which China is actually the world's largest oil. So, so there was an agreement that was struck last year, but basically a sort of strate comprehensive strategic agreement between China and the and Saudi Arabia. Xi Jinping went to Riyadh, was treated with a lot more aplomb, shall we say, than when Biden when they've been willing to make agreements with Huawei, the Chinese tech firm. But at the same time, it, I think it would be wrong to say that Saudi is now just betting on China. It, it's not actually doing that. It's not saying, okay, the US isn't the world's largest oil importer and longer we need to be, just be closer to China. The very way in which the sport issue is playing out suggests that they're not really interested in pouring all that those new petrodollars into Chinese They're not just investments. flipping no. like the 1970s. They're not, they're not playing that role with China today. No, and no. they're not now also. And they're also, I mean, there was, a, I think this was just over the weekend, an agreement which involved India about creating an economic corridor between India to Mediterranean Europe with Saudi quite like central to that. It looks to me at least that they're trying to say in a multipolar world, we're going to orientate ourselves Always. And yeah. that is, I think, different than anything that we've seen from the Saudis before. Well, again, we were saying in the first half of this episode that some of these moments just seem to reveal the truth of the world underneath. You know, the moment China takes over the United States as the biggest importer of oil, the, that moment that MBS flies to Moscow. And perhaps this is the point here that... Saudi Arabia not choosing China, not choosing the US, not choosing Russia, but choosing them all yeah. and India and Europe. That that reveals the world underneath. The world that's the world that we're emerging into slowly and it's it's going to be hard to see it necessarily with each uh, I don't know each war or each trade deal, but that's the world that's coming into play and that's the world we have to kind of deal with. I don't know what it means for Europe because we're not really a I don't know. Are we a, are we a pole in this world? I, I, I don't know. We just fly into the Middle East on holiday. <laughs> well, I think that what it means is in terms of the the oil and gas question is is that Europe, the Middle East is still pretty important for Europe. In fact, more so than it was before Russia's invasion of 
of Ukraine. Course, yeah. So you know, in that sense, there there is something of the the post Second World War world without the imperial yeah context that went with it. Then now, I think that it's how these questions play out, even in the next few years, is still really quite open. Not least because nothing in the way in which Mohammed bin Salman has acted so far suggests that he's a very strategic, patient player of, no, the, exactly. of the geo yeah, yeah. Um, political game. But as you said, Tom, that that should actually give us some cause for like alarm because it, it, it is a different Saudi strategy than what we've seen before. It is a change. It's happening in an energy world that is profoundly changing, but changing at a speed in which nobody can know what that speed is. So it creates an awful lot um, of uncertainty. And then I think because the US-Saudi relationship has been so pivotal to the story for so long, and because now that the Saudi relationship has become a partisan issue in Washington, and that goes beyond Trump, it's kind of become a Democratic versus Republican yeah. thing um, too. But Trump is there in the mix in the US and he's got these commercial ties back to bin Salman. That's that's also a, a, something that's not quite there, I think, in the way in which things have, have um been, been before and it means and I'm sure this is going to be something we're going to come back to it means that what's going on in terms of the domestic politics of the United States and which way that, that next election goes is going to be of really consequential I think to how the Saudi story plays out we've reached the end of today's episode I hope you enjoyed it if you did please subscribe share like on social media thanks for all your questions as well that you've sent in we really appreciate it I know we've been saying that we'll answer them this week but we've got a special interview with Rory Stewart that we'll release on Thursday so we'll turn to the questions with a special full episode released next Thursday please keep the questions coming in we plan to turn the question and answer session into a regular feature for the podcast these times is produced by you and daughtry small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because rust-oleum's new custom spray five and one gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks crannies edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50-80% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.